singing, praying, baptizing, preaching. We're doing church this morning, are we not? I think we are. And uh, it's a good thing. So we open God's word now as God's people have done for centuries and we say to it, God speak to us today. And uh, the words that we're going to study are, are very few, but they have a lot to say as we continue the series in the Ten Commandments. And uh, as we noted last week, that there is an internal, there's an internal structure, there's a necessary outline that the Ten Commandments flow. Commands one through four are all about the vertical relationship, man's responsibility, man's duty to God. Five through ten are horizontal. They're about man's responsibility to his fellow man. You might say, well, why don't we just skip one through four and let's just get to five through ten. That's where really the rubber meets the road. That's where I live my life. And uh, uh, the answer to that is that uh, it doesn't work that way. You take out the beginning point of man's relationship to God and now five through ten don't make sense. The one is built upon Upon the other. And this is important to note as we get into commands six and seven. uh, These marquee sins, these are these are the bad ones. These are the ones that every religion, every culture, they all say, Don't do these, because if you do these, you're in big trouble. These are the uh the big sins. Command number six, no murder. Command number seven, no adultery. Hate and sex. Now that sounds like a movie title, doesn't it? And one that a lot of people would go to. I'm going to that one. That sounds like the world that I live in, right? So much of the struggle that we have is anger at others and lust for others. You know, that's the brilliance of the Ten Commands. And we're not, you know, we're only halfway done with them. But as we work our way through them, I hope that you're beginning to realize that every single one of them just hits us square where we struggle, right down to the heart level. It's almost as if God really understands our hearts. And I say that, that's, that dripping sound is not melting snow. It is sarcasm that is dripping off of that comment. He does know our hearts. And so when he made his top ten, every single one of them is placed right where we struggle. And we struggle so much in these categories of six and seven. So today we're going to study, and next week, by the way, uh, command number six. And this is a command on the surface you read it, you go, oh, I got it. But in reality, there, is, there are so many implications to this command, including uh, euthanasia, suicide, human rights, racism, abortion, Forms of birth control, capital punishment, medicine, health and fitness, gun rights, drunk driving, cigarette smoking, and even daily cheerfulness. I'm not going to get into that this weekend. That's next weekend. You got to come back for that one. All right. So how does he get daily cheerfulness out of the sixth command? Well, we're going to get there. Okay. All of these from this one command, and it's only two words in the Hebrew. Okay, very, very short command. Seven is as well. And, and, and here it is in the, uh, the ESV says, you shall not murder. 
Or you might know the King James, thou shalt not kill. No murder. Now you see, you look at that, you go, oh, I got that. I haven't murdered anybody. Don't plan to. Can we skip forward to the ones I'm actually struggling with? Well, I think we all struggle with this one for reasons that we will uh, see in a moment. So it's not complicated in the sense that it's so brief, it's so short. What is complicating in this command uh, is what it means to murder or to kill. And now here is, here is where you have complexity because in the Hebrew, they have eight different words for killing. And the one that's used here, uh, for example, it is, it's never applied to uh, the courts. It's never applied to the military. So apparently there is a kind of killing that is afforded uh, the courts and law, justice, and a soldier that somehow doesn't apply to this. Well, then how can that be? Because isn't all killing, killing? And I mean, what, what are you talking about? It also is never used for hunting or the killing of animals as another example. Okay, so what kind of killing is being described here? What is, what is murder that we are not to do? And, and the big thing that I, I want you to hear in this, and, and wiser people than I have said this, is that all, all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. Okay? All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. And we see that even in the Old Testament law, because here you have a command, you shall not murder. And yet, the the law of God also has all of these provisions for what happens when, for example, somebody is accidentally killed. And things happen, don't you? You're working on the farm, you're doing this, you're doing that. Accidents happen, and people are tragically killed from it. And in the Old Testament law, there was a provision that if, if you were involved in something that involved the killing of another, you could flee to what was called a city of refuge. And there were city of refuges uh, throughout Israel. And you could go there, and once you got there, you were safe. And the leaders of that city would protect you until a trial could take place and the circumstances could be considered for it to be determined whether or not the killing that you did was lawful or not. And if not, then the punishment was, was death. Our laws have similar provisions, by the way. There is what is called first-degree murder. This is, this is murder that is premeditated. This is murder that is clearly intentioned. And uh, it is the taking of another's life, which is uh, different than what our law calls manslaughter, which is also killing somebody, but it's not premeditated. It's a moment of rage or passion or something like that. That's called manslaughter. But then we also have involuntary manslaughter. And involuntary manslaughter is when somebody is killed because of uh, negligence or foolishness or carelessness of some kind. And that can, be, um, that can be a sentence of involuntary manslaughter. And then you add on to that all kinds of other situations that we see in the news all the time. Like self-defense. Somebody breaks into your house. And you are confronted, and you, in that moment there is a struggle. Is it okay to kill in a moment like that or not? Or how about uh, some other act of aggression? You're out in the marketplace, you're out wherever, and somebody seeks to do violence against you. How about police using force 
and even taking the life of somebody in some circumstance. Is that allowable? Why do the police get to do it and nobody else? How about uh, defending our country? What if you are a soldier? And is the taking of a life on the battlefield in the eyes of God allowable? And if so, when and why? Which is somehow different on a battlefield than a jealous husband who uh, takes an act of aggression against somebody that is uh, wronged him. So you get into this, and I hope you're beginning to see that, wow, this is more complex than I, than I realized. You look at the verse, it's two words in the Hebrew, no big deal, don't murder, got it. Oh, wait a second, there's a lot more to this, and indeed there is a lot more to this. So we look at God's law, and we see even within God's law that there are times when human life can be taken, and it is not ethically wrong, and there are times when human life can, can never be taken, and if it is, it is always ethically wrong. We have the whole issue of capital punishment as an example of this. Is it right for uh, the government to exact a punishment on somebody who takes the life of another by taking their life. And of course, this is a very debated thing in our, in our uh, country right now. And to all of this, the Bible says something like Romans thirteen four regarding the authorities over us. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword. That was the ancient weapon. In vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He is an earthly agent uh, exercising deputized justice from God to them regarding moral and ethical right and wrong. So there are times then, even within God's law, where killing is allowed... And times where killing is not. Again, to say it this way, all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. So what kind of killing then is the sixth command talking about? Well, here's what it is. It is condemning the unlawful taking of human life. Or to say it this way, as one person did, helpfully, murder in cold blood, manslaughter with passionate rage, and negligent homicide resulting from recklessness or carelessness. It is not talking in the sixth command about uh, provisions where human, the taking of human life is allowable. It is not talking about the taking of human life in a just war. Not talking about taking life in capital punishment. Not talking about taking life to save human life, like in an act of self-defense or some decision that a police officer would have to make, not talking about extreme medical situations or even the situations families find themselves in where their loved one is only living because the machines are keeping them alive. Not talking about that. And the why here, I think, is explained um, uh, with the what. So why then is... Unlawful killing condemned by God. And this, I think, begs a certain question that we have is just, why is this wrong? We instinctively know that it's wrong. Like, I think if we did a poll here, how many of you think murdering somebody is wrong? Everybody's raising their hands. And you could go all over the world, and to take a human life in, in a murderous fashion is 
ethically and morally condemned in every culture on earth. But why is it wrong? Why? You say, well, it's because a culture dictates that that is wrong. Well, then if culture dictates that it's not wrong, is it okay? You say, oh, nobody would ever do it. Actually, yes. We go back 70 years. And the, comp- in the, the country of Germany, as an example of this, was possibly the most educated country in the world. You say, well, but they weren't religious. Possibly the most religious country in the world. Well, they weren't Christian. They were Lutheran. Lutheran. And the land of Martin Luther, somehow, in a situational ethic, redefined what was okay and what wasn't. And the taking of undesirable human life, which for them clearly was uh, the Jews in the Holocaust, but also they killed, they killed uh, gypsies, they killed anybody with uh, handicaps, uh, mental or otherwise, Uh, They could deem certain human beings unworthy and unfit for living, and therefore it was ethically okay for them uh, to uh, exterminate them. Or how about Stalin? Fifteen million of his own people he murdered for political reasons. Is power and politics an acceptable reason for the taking of human life? Or we can even look in our own country, where... Since Roe v. Wade, we have aborted 55 million unborn children. So our culture doesn't get sort of a free pass on the we don't murder thing, right? So is there then, if, it, if, if we say, well, you can't situ- uh, culturally or situationally define murder and killing however you want. Well, what are those transcendent realities that always make the taking of human life unlawfully wrong and to that the bible has something very clear to say first of all and there's by the way there's two call these the the two north stars although there's only one north star that's a bad metaphor i think but if there were two north stars these would be it what are those transcendent realities that define this moral category And the first is simply this, that life is a precious gift from God. Human life is a precious gift from God. What is life? What what does it mean to be alive? I'll bet most of us have had some moment in our life where we we saw a dead body at at a funeral, a viewing, something like that. And, and to this day, I remember the very first dead body that I, I ever saw. I was like in fourth grade. I went to this Christian school, and they were having a funeral, and they had the casket in a back hallway that I happened to be walking through. And I didn't know it was a casket. I don't think I'd ever been to a funeral. And I peeked over the edge, and there was this elderly lady, and she was dead. And I ran down the hallway in fear. It just scared me so much. Because to see a dead body, there's always something surreal about it, isn't there? Uh, because you look at the body, and if it's somebody that you've known, you recognize something is missing. They look like they always have. You expect them to wake up, right? Just sit up and stand up and be like they've always been. But something, something is tragically missing. And that something is life. And life is a precious gift from God. 
It is a gift from God. The Bible describes how God gave the gift of life to mankind. This is Genesis 2, verse 7. This is the creation narrative. God has made the body, formed the body of of Adam out of the dust of the ground. But there's something that is still missing. And it says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became what? Alive, right? He became alive. That body became animated. What is, what is life? It is what God breathed into Adam. It is soul. It is spirit. It is that animating aspect of what it means to be human, which is a very precious gift. It is, it is your personality. It is your, your consciousness, self-awareness, this thing that we, we what it means to be alive vibrancy it is a gift from god death is the separation of the body it's it's the reversal of genesis 2 7 in genesis 2 7 god has a body that he breathes life into death is the separation of the body from the person the body from the life the essence of what it means to be us and that Life is such a privilege. It is a privilege to simply be alive, isn't it? Now, we often don't think that, do we? Because we've never known what it's like not to be alive. Every day we wake up in the morning and we have consciousness and we have awareness and our body begins to move and we get into our day and that day is like every other of the thousands of days that we have lived and so we take it for granted just to what it means to be alive and the value of life it is a very precious gift i like the way ecclesiastes says it better a live dog than a dead lion ecclesiastes 9 4 what a what a privilege to be alive. I wonder if you think about it that way. Like today, to be human, to have vibrancy, to have a mind that can communicate, to have personality and relationship, for a, to be in a body that you can go and do and move and all of it means, it is a privilege. And suddenly that privilege dawns on people when that is threatened, Right? And so you hear stories about people when they, when they, when they have cancer or something like that. What, is, what do they often say after they discover it or maybe after they've beaten it? Man, every day is a gift. Or you hear stories, survival stories. Like the, the fellow that, I forget the story now. I'm freelancing right now. But I vaguely remember the story of the guy that was hiking or climbing or something. And his leg got caught. And the only way that he could live was to cut off his leg, which he did. Or some extremity, I forget which one it was. Somebody's raising their hand. I don't know if you have a question or it was his hand that got stuck. Uh, but why would somebody cut off their leg, their arm, their hand? Because it is more valuable to be alive than to have both hands and both feet. That gift of life. And God has given this gift to us. Only he could do it. And the reason God could do it is that he is the source of life. He is, he's the most alive person in the whole universe. And he took some of that life and he breathed it into Adam. 
and to Eve. And they pass that life on down through all the generations. And so that we're alive today right now. Breathing, thinking, speaking, relating, rejoicing, moving. We're alive. Do not take that gift for granted. This day is a day to be alive. And we know in the narrative of of Scripture that what has happened is that sin has taken that gift. And death takes it with finality, the gift of life. And so the sixth command is saying something. It is saying that life is sacred. Life is precious. Life is wonderful. And it must be so valued that to take that life that God has given to somebody else or even to myself is always wrong. God is the giver of life. Death is a taker. Satan is a taker. Sin is a taker and a stealer. God is a giver. Now, the second reason that this is always wrong, that second North Star, <laughs> there's only one, but pretend, because uh, you're alive with imagination, which is also a gift, by the way, uh, is the fact that every human being is made in the image of God. Now, there are certain doctrinal truths that we go back to over and over and over again. We go back to the the Trinity and the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and the nature of the triune God because so much that's so foundational to so many other things. And we often go back to Genesis 1 through 3 because in Genesis 1 through 3, we find out who we are and we find out what happened and why this world is the mess that it is. And so often we go back to the fact that we are made in the image of God. What it means to be human. We find our identity, who I am as a person, defined by the image or the likeness that I bear. Now here's the biblical account of it. Very familiar verses. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God is there. This is the creation narrative. And uh, God now is going to create mankind. He's going to create Adam. And it says this. Then God said, let us. See the little triune trinity reference there let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them now these verses are so important because they tell us who we are Like, what does it mean to be me? What does it mean to be male and female, for example, is also in there. Our sexuality, our gender. So much confusion about that in the world right now, but that's another sermon, okay? With uh, gender confusion and what it means to relate to one another as as males and females. But what I want you to see here is what God did when he made us and what he did that makes us absolutely unique in all of creation. He's already created the plants and he's already created the planets and he's already created uh, the animals and the birds and everything else. But he does something with us. He does something when he makes humans that is 
different than anybody else, everything else in all creation. We are uniquely, the text says, made in his image, in his likeness. So right away there, we can see that there is something special about being human. We are not the same as the dolphins. We're not the same as the chimpanzees. As much as our culture wants to say that, we're all the same. There's nothing special. No, there is something special. There is something sacred in this world. And to be human is to be sacred. Not because of how we look or smart, how smart we are or anything like that, but because of the person whose likeness we reflect. God himself, we are uniquely made in the image of God. We are uniquely made like God is. We are not gods. Hate to disappoint many of you. We are not gods. We're not even close. But aspects of who God is, we have, right? We have, we have a mind, we can think, we can communicate, we are relational, we have personality, we are spiritual. All of these are qualities that God also is. And so God makes us like he is, which gives then to each single human being an inherent worth and dignity. Now there's some good news for you today. You walked in here, your chin was down, you're all disappointed. I'm a nobody. My dear friend, you are made in the image of almighty God. You have inherent worth and dignity as a man and as a woman. And the beauty of this is that this applies to every human life. Every one of them. This applies to the man. It applies to the woman. It applies to the teenage girl. It applies to the teenage boy. It applies to children. It applies to the fetus in her mama's womb. It applies to the elderly person who, by our culture standards, has nothing to offer anymore. It applies to the man in the penthouse. It applies to the homeless man in downtown Chicago. It applies irrespective of the skin color. It applies to every single race. It applies to every social category. It applies to every educational category. It applies to every person that bears the image of God. There is inherent worth and dignity in being human because we reflect the image of God. And therefore, to take that life is to usurp the role that God alone has. And it is actually an act of violence, not simply against the person, but against God himself. And now we're back to the first command. We have value because of whose image we reflect. And he is holy, holy, holy. So much so that God himself, a little bit later in the story here, is going to say something about somebody who would take another's life. You know, murder enters into the story right away. You've got Cain and Abel, uh, an act of murder between brothers. And in Genesis 9, verse 6, God says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And notice that Genesis 9 is after the fall. 
Even after sin enters into the world, and even this image is, it's distorted, right? But it is still there, sufficient, that God says, you take one of my image bearers' life, your life shall be accounted for doing it. We call this capital punishment. And that is a statement of man's worth. And this is why in the world that we live in, where we're the same as the chimps and the dolphins, when it comes to the matter of capital punishment, this also is something that is not as popular now, is it? In fact, you might remember in Illinois, I forget the date, a couple years ago, uh, the governor commuted the sentence of every single person who was uh, facing a, 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 a capital punishment. And he was hailed as a great hero of human rights. Actually, it's the opposite of that. When you undermine the consequences of what it takes or what it means to take a human life, you are demeaning the value of the life itself. Or as one writer says, humanism rejects capital punishment in an attempt, it would seem, to value man and honor him. Yet humanism rejects the image of God in man. And thus, ironically, it fails to take man seriously enough. And so God ensures the value of every human life by putting a consequence on what it means if you take that life, which by his uh, purpose is to preserve the value of human life and not to demean it. So do you see how this is so critical? And to realize why we are valued in the eyes of God We bear his image. To illustrate this, some of you might remember an old movie. I think it won Oscar for, um, you know, movie of the year. Uh, A movie called The Killing Fields. Do you remember The Killing Fields? Some of you might remember. It's the story of what happened in Cambodia when the Khmer Rouge went in there and just began massacring everybody in a takeover there in Cambodia. Well, they did this movie about that called The Killing Fields. And the star of that movie uh, was a guy by the name of, and I'm probably mispronouncing this, but it's a tough one to pronounce, uh, Hang Haing Ngor, N-G-O-R is his last name. And this guy's story is a fascinating one. He actually was, this is the actor who played the main role in that movie. Uh, he was Cambodian by... Uh, by birth and grew up in Cambodia, in fact, was a physician in Cambodia, had a wife and children when the Khmer Rouge came in. And uh, he had to hide his identity and they did all kinds of things to try to, you know, preserve their life. But in the end, the the Khmer Rouge killed his wife, his children, and uh, imprisoned him. He was able to escape. He ran off into the jungle. He lived off the roots of the trees for some time but eventually was able to make his way to the United States. And as he came to the United States, he became an actor and acted in this movie and won Oscar for Best Actor, having never really acted before. Uh, I think there's only maybe two people that have ever won that award in that fashion, and he was one of them. And as a result then of all of this fame that came from the movie and from the Oscar, he became a a humanitarian and did a lot of social work, was very highly admired. Um, 
When he left Cambodia, he was able to escape. He had one possession, and it was very dear to him. It was a locket, and in that locket was a picture of his wife, the only picture that he had of his wife and a few strands of her hair. And he escaped with that locket, had it all that time. Well, one day in Los Angeles, um, this guy, he was 46 years old, and some you know, bad guys, some thugs caught him uh, you know, in an in a, uh, unsafe place. And they demanded him, they said, give us all your money. He quickly gave everything he had, everything valuable on him, he gave it to them. And they said, give us that locket although they probably wouldn't know it was a locket. (laughs) Give us that too, right? And he took the locket in his hand and he begged them. He said, this is the only memory I have of my deceased wife. Please, please, please do not take it. And they insisted and he begged them. And these guys killed this man to get that locket out of his hand. And uh, Oscar-winning best actor killed as a result of this. Now let me ask you the question, why would that locket be so valuable to him? I mean, it's just a little piece of jewelry, it's a picture. Was it about the value of the gold and um, silver? Maybe that was on it. Is that why it was so valuable? Why was that locket so valuable to him that he would give his life for it? And those of us who've been in love, we know. The reason that that thing was so valuable was the picture inside. And it wasn't the picture itself, but the value to him of the, of the likeness that it had to his wife. And because he loved her so much, that picture was so valuable to her. And here now we see why this truth is so critical is that in the eyes of God, we're the locket. We're the, we're the picture, we're, we're the reminder to him of what is so infinitely glorious and worthy, Jesus, his son, and ultimately God himself. We, li- we have the likeness of the infinitely glorious, wonderful God. And so that image, no matter where it is, and no matter how much it screams, <laughs> is valuable. And always, always will be. And so to take that image and destroy it in the eyes of God is always wrong. Now, I want to quickly mention Jesus and this command. Jesus and the sixth command. And I do this because if I don't, some of you write letters critical that I didn't probably, so, um, which is itself a violation of the sixth command. Anyway, uh, (laughs) Matthew 5, verses 21 through 22 say this, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now this is Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, probably his most famous sermon. And Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament law, specifically here the sixth command. 
And he gives them what the contemporary application of that command was. Namely, that as long as you don't kill somebody, you've obeyed the sixth command. If you never pull the trigger, if you never, you know, if you never are the one that is doing this, then you're fine. And so, no doubt, in the first century, a lot of people, Israelites, the Jews, reading that, they get to the sixth command, I'll skip ahead, we don't think about that, I've never murdered anybody, I'm fine. And Jesus says, no, wait a second, I want you to understand how this works. Murder is not simply the actual act, but the motives and the attitudes of the heart that are behind the murder, namely anger against a fellow image bearer. Jesus says you can never murder anyone and violate the sixth command every day, right? Where does that murder come from? The heart. And if in my heart I am harboring malice against my brother or my sister or my neighbor or my boss or whoever it might be, then I am as much violating the sixth command as somebody who actually does the act. Because God looks at our hearts. And it is down there in our hearts where there is something that is broken that is producing the violence. And I wonder today how many of us perhaps came in thinking, well, the sixth command, I'm good. He'll say some interesting things. I'll laugh a little out the door. And yet your tongue is like a gun. And it is blasting gossip and slander all the time against somebody that wronged you or that you don't like or that annoys you and you think i'm fine i'm justified in doing it because that's the horrible person that they are we tear people down with our words and our actions and our insinuations image bearers of the most high god we treat poorly we lack kindness they're in our way we're short with them impatient with them out of my way right does the sixth command have something to say about that am i violating am i realizing in that moment who this person is am i giving them am i giving them love or hate am i giving them respect or disrespect am i treating them as an object of the mercy of god an object of the love of god do i realize who i'm dealing with all of us here Every image bearer here worthy as an image bearer, not as a sinner, but as an image bearer of the love of God. And how ought that change the way that we relate to one another? How hospitable we are to one another? How quick we are to try to meet the needs of another? If we realize who we actually are in the likeness of God. And now, does that have implications? All over the place, doesn't it? And it ought, even if we never kill anyone. How do we treat them? Now, what have I said this whole series? I've said, you know what, every negative command, and eight of the ten are negative, are in the negative. Every negative command has a corresponding positive. And we have that very much here. The command is, you shall not murder, Okay? What is the positive of that? It is simply this. And here we are on the enduring Christian theme. What are we to do? We are to love. 
We are to love one another. Can a message about murder be a message about love? Yes, this is it right here. This is a message about loving and caring and kindness towards one another, towards our fellow image bearer, no matter who she is. And this is the challenge when you're checking out at at the store and when you're driving on the Dan Ryan and when you are in a hurry doing this or that or the family member that you long ago gave up on or the friend that betrayed you. And on and on we can go with what it means to live in this world and to pile up people that we resent. How easy it is to put them in a category and then justify treating them any way that we want to. And yet is this not what, isn't this why Jesus shocked the world? And even to this day we read the story, we can't believe it. Why? Because he walked into a culture that defined people's worth based on how much money they had. And how much power they had. And what they could do for me. And he stepped into that. And suddenly now in the world there is one person that looks at everybody the same. And so he reaches out to people that nobody else cared about. The tax collector. The prostitute. The blind man. The lame man. They were like refuse along the road. Don't bother Jesus. Get out of our way. And who did Jesus stop and talk to and touch and minister to and forgive their sins? Precisely the people that in that culture nobody cared about. And yet Jesus did. Why? Because he was looking at people through an entirely different set of values and priorities. And we ought to be glad that he did. Because who are we here today if not the prostitute, the tax collector, the blind and the lame. Spiritually, we are empty. What do we have to offer? Nothing. We offer Jesus nothing. And yet he loves. He loves. And that is the call of the sixth command. Is, like Jesus, to not look at people because of their skin color. To not look at people because of the money they have. To not look at people because of what they have to offer me. To not look at people, whether they are old or young, Smart or not, successful or not, but to look at them as people and to love them, don't hate them. Love them, don't murder them. Love them, don't slander them. Love them, don't injure them. Love them, don't betray them. Love them, don't hate them. Now that sounds really nice, doesn't it? And some of you are like, well, this, is, this sounds like a speech at, uh, from the 60s. I'm having a Woodstock like retro experience here. Minus the drugs. <laughs> which is part of the application next week, but you'll have to come back for that. Uh, because the world loves love messages, doesn't it? Love one another, you know. And yet the Christian message sounds the same, but it is fundamentally different. Why? Because Christianity does not begin with the, hey, we're all good people, we need to love one another. It says what in our hearts we know to be true, and that is that we are by nature haters. We are by nature selfish. We are by nature people who treat others commensurate with what we think they will do for us. That is our nature. And left to ourselves, 
we will have malice, bitterness, anger, resentment, murderous thoughts, all of our lives. No matter how great the speech is, to the contrary. And into that steps with Christianity a message that we are not good people who need to love more, that we are sinners, we are haters. And that this world in its sin and hate violated the sixth command against Jesus. What was the cross except the murder of the Son of God? They murdered him on the cross. And here now you see the brilliance and the wisdom and the just what do you say about this? God, we commit the sixth command against God. And in that, mo- in that moment, God fulfills the second greatest command to us. He loved his neighbor as himself. We kill him, he loves us. And in loving us and Jesus dying on the cross for us, the message of Christianity is that haters have hope now. And and betrayers have hope. And murderers have hope. How? There is forgiveness to be found in this one that we murdered. That God placed the guilt of that sin upon Christ. Which is why I could give this message on death row at the, at the penitentiary uh, in Terre Haute. And say all you murderers and all you thieves and all of you rapists and all of you violent people. There is forgiveness for you in Christ. Did you hear Sherry's testimony by the way in the waters of baptism? She's right here. I hope she doesn't mind me focusing on this a moment. Because I loved it. What did she say was the thing that, that just she couldn't get over and ultimately brought her back to the church that she was never going to go back to? <laughs> I love that line. I'm never going back there again. I'm baptized there now. <laughs> what was the word? It was the word forgiveness, wasn't it? Forgiveness. And that the love of God and the forgiveness that is available to haters and murderers and violent people like us, changes us. It changes us. So that now the hater can love because the love of God is the most powerful reality in all the world. And by his spirit, when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, there is change that happens inside of me. Where now I don't hate everyone all the time. Now I have the love of God towards me which changes me into loving others with the same love that God has touched my own heart. And that love extends to everyone, or at least it ought to, right? And we do this imperfectly on the side of resurrection, but it does change us. That's why John would write, you know who, well, Jesus said this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. When you see naturally hating people actually loving and self-giving for others, you know something's happened, right? That is the apologetic of love. It is a testimony to the change that God's love brings to us. And that's why wherever authentic Christianity has gone down through history, there has also been accompanying loving expressions like hospitals, orphanages, schools, 
pregnancy centers, elderly care facilities, and a host of other ministries and things that go on all every day all over the world, all flowing from God's love to us. That vertical love changing the way that we horizontally relate to one another. Now, what this means for adoption and what this means for human rights and what this means for racial reconciliation and a host of other implications is next week's message. Going to have to come back for part two. And I hope that you will. And uh, in the meantime, though, did you hear what I was saying there? There is forgiveness found in Jesus, that act of expression, his work on the cross, for all who will believe and trust in him. And if you're here today, you've never experienced that. You've never realized that. You have never believed in Jesus. Why not today? Okay? The greatest reality in all the world is the love of God. And that expression is his son, Jesus, who will change you, who will save you if you will believe and trust in him. And that's what all these baptism people this weekend are testifying, that God has changed me. And that same change can come to you. More on this next week. Would you stand for prayer?